This is episode 148. Those of you who follow me on social media already know that last week I was in Paris uh, attending and making short presentation at the 7th International Journalist Symposium on Conservation and Sustainable Use of Wildlife Resources. There it is, yours truly in the brochure. And also, after the next day, after that symposium, there was a 69th General Assembly of the CIC. Of course, CIC stands for International Council for Game and Wildlife Conservation. Okay, so this is very established, old uh, hunting organization. And the whole thing was uh, just an experience. And no less part of that experience was Rob York. You know uh, who Rob York is, probably, if you listen to this podcast. If you don't know, you will know after listening to this episode. Rob is an environmental dialogue broker. And what is environmental dialogue broker? We're going to dive in in the episode. I took microphones and recorder and cables and even small camera and flew with them all the way from Ireland to Paris to record an episode with Rob, as if I couldn't do it online. Probably I couldn't. And as usual, before I let you enjoy this episode of the podcast, remember to subscribe to my newsletter if you haven't already, okay? It is very important, so you subscribe to the newsletter, because in that newsletter there's way more things than just notifications about the new episodes of the podcast. So link is in the description of the show. Go in there, click the link, subscribe to the newsletter, and now enjoy my conversation with Rob York. This episode is slightly different than the usual one. I'm here with the one and only Rob York. Who is that eel? Rob York, rural, no, no, sorry, not right, environmental dialogue broker. What does it even mean? Tommy, that is a mean question this time in the morning because I am feeling, I'm not hungover, I'm just very tired, but, uh, and I'm liable to say all kinds of things. So I've got to watch my blind spot, uh, but it's great to be here. And we're in Paris which is not a usual kind of backstop for me. Uh, absolutely. And we are just after the International Journalist Symposium on conservation and sustainable use of wildlife. Some people will shrug thinking like, oh, use of wildlife, which was kind of like in parallel of the CIC General Assembly. So we were kind of like involved in the, in the Journalist Assembly and I just could not grab that opportunity and sit down with you and talk because otherwise you you just refuse to do it online. Well, yeah, yeah, because that's the whole point of be, about being here is being face to face. There, 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 there are conversations that we cannot have online, and this is one example of them. Um, so it was about seven years ago that someone said, "Hey, maybe you uh, should join the Wildlife and Conservation International." organization whatever it was called and i said no way it's far too expensive but maybe i can help them to kind of run some you know kind of conferences and then out of that became you know came the uh this journalistic symposium and the great thing about it is that it is a safe space to have robust 
face-to-face conversations with people who are not just pro-hunting journalists, but also non-hunting uh, journalists. That was, it was what stand out to me, like one of the questions was like, oh, I'm here to find out if CIC is not greenwashing. Yeah. And it was like all sorts of things. So that was like non-biased to one. And is that what the dialogue broker is? Is that what you're, because I want to come back to my question, like what is dialogue broker? How you understand it? What is the eel in the grass? And I know that I annoy people because people can't quite put a finger on what I do. Um, and yeah, I mean, you started with the word rural. And that's, at one point I was a rural commentator. Uh, Ah, that's why. A commentator on rural affairs when I wrote stuff in the Times and then the Times got rid of me so he's far too complex. So I I then kind of metamorphosized into, into, yeah, environmental dialogue broker because at one stage I thought I could do some kind of diplomacy and get people to come together and agree things and move on. But then I realized, no, we're still in the brokerage stage. And that's because of everything that's happened in the backdrop. We want to talk about conservation and wildlife and, you know, hunting and other environmental issues. But no, we've got to be aware of the backdrop right now. We've got Brexit. We've got climate change. Climate change is the big one. It's been increasing in speed. Uh, We've got the Ukraine war, obviously. COVID-19 has had such an impact, an unforeseen impact Partly, people now want to do stuff online, but have to have really tough conversations online, I don't think you can do it. I'm sorry, you can't read the body language, and 75% of uh, communication is body language. It's not the spoken word. But I know you do a lot of spoken stuff, and I was going to turn the table, and, and I loved your presentation for one comment, which you said at the uh, journalistic symposium, which I was basically, I, I ask hard questions in a friendly way. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, I know that you pick it up on that. And, and I think this is what we need. And, you know, like a lot of what people doing in the, in the, in the mass media or like a popular, I'd like a term is use term legacy media. And that this is the theme that we were talking a lot about, you know, what's legacy, where the world was and where the world is right now and move forward. And, and I think that uh, the connection, uh, like right now, we're just we're just sitting, and I can uh, ask the questions that I'm genuinely curious about. And I, you know, like it's like like a child asking you a question, and the child will ask you all sorts of questions without understanding like what they really asking. You know, like oh, why are you so ugly? Or you know, so this is kind of like that. You could ask these questions, and then all of a sudden you have this this atmosphere, this connection, this. And then you're asking what hard questions, like, oh, was it? You know? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and also it's when you're face to face, you can sometimes see what's the question they're not asking. It's seen between the lines, and you can only do that when you're in a conference or in a room, and you can kind of you're you're starting to see where the where the gaps are. Now, you know, social media. I mean, we could probably spend a whole lot of time talking about social media because it's a great way of exchanging information, but to have conversations is a bit of a disaster in the UK. Uh, we are seeing a lot of, let's say, tension and interaction between uh, uh, people in the rural sector, whether it's farming and forestry and land managers. And there's a lot of tension which, yeah, needs to be discussed. But when it's done online, people forget that it affects real people. And so we're saying stuff online which we wouldn't say face-to-face. Not only that, I heard that quote, I don't remember who said it, that... Um, that they look at people they know in the in their life, and then they look at their Twitter presence, and they like, I would never consider even you know talking to that person. 
based on the based on their presence online. Yet I know that person. He's my friend or she's my friend. They're they're lovely people. But if I didn't know them personally and just look like, what are they doing? I would never, you know. And I feel about certain people like that that they're they're lovely people. They're they, they you know no names obviously. But they're lovely people. I, I I love talking to them, and they're great. But then you look at their online presence, and you're just like, oh, just like you don't do these things. Why? Well, I mean, and I I mean, we're going through some really tough times. Our brains are rewiring to these new ways of communicating. So we're never going to get away from online stuff from social media. But we've got to somehow uh, realign, repurpose ourselves, and that in a way brings me back towards hunting because that expression you said. One of the journalists said, "Hey, is this just about greenwash?" And you, we, we could apply the same thing to many rural primary industries. So I use the word industries, and that is basically agriculture, hunting, uh, forestry, aquaculture. Uh, and people don't like the word industry, but that's what we're talking about because it's at the front line of the environment. And it's how to come away from the extractive nature of some of these industries and turn them into a more cyclical and that is that is not an easy thing to do without without some kind of truth and reconciliation as to what happened in the past. You know, hunting. Uh, and in fact, I mentioned this in my short vlog before this event. Hunting within scientific papers is always to do with the the decline, extermination, or you know, uh, the damage to wildlife. Yet in the modern context, if we can accept that happened in the past, the same as farming after the second world war in the uk hedges pulled out because that's what the government asked them to do now farmers are putting hedges back in now farmers uh, sorry now hunters can become part of conservation solutions but there has to be some kind of reconciliation as to what happened in the past um and i i, I think we can i think we can have some in order to have those conversations i think we've got to find some really good spaces and they can't be sponsored by the protagonists I mean, I was just reading a great article in The Economist all about the peace uh, agreement. It's the 25-year peace agreement of the Northern Ireland uh, Peace Accord, etc. And those guys, let's not go too deep into politics, but everything is political. Those guys hated each other. They wanted to kill each other, but they found enough common ground to come together and to be able to do what had to be done, which was some kind of truth and reconciliation. No, no, for sure. Do you think that uh, the? I think we are, we can agree that we talking about the conflict in the space of the nature and wildlife, or the you know various interests. And do you think that this is mainly because the fact of the matter is that the nature declined so badly? You know, sometimes I feel like if we have the, the you know like abundant access and abundant natural habitats uh, that are you know how they're supposed to be there wouldn't be that much conversation it's it's it comes from the genuine point of concerns for concern from both sides yeah sure but it it, it was always going to happen i think there's sometimes people talk about this is a false argument to say that we can have lots of affordable food lots of animals uh uh, and, and, you know, th th we have to kind of face the trade-offs that exist. So um, humans, yes, are part of the ecosystem, always have been. But as we've increased our footprint, as we've urbanized, we've then extracted stuff from the environment in order to feed the urbanized, urbanizing population. Now, that's happening at different phases around the world. I think there has to be an acceptance that it is it's it's going to be it is going to be hard to offset. I mean, there's this there is this kind of movement, or there's two movements: whole Earth and half Earth. 
whole earth are in a way land sharing the idea that yes we as humans can interact in that ecosystem with nature we can share it but we're going to have to change a lot of primary industry techniques how we farm how we do forestry how we do hunting etc the other one is half earth and that's retreat from half of the earth leave it to nature and a lot of people were looking at cop 15 and saying yeah 30 by 30 that's not enough we need to retreat from more of the world more of the land in order to give it back to nature which in theory is the land sparing that's where you're sparing the land for nature and you're retreating to live in cities i had the example of where i live in the brecon beacons uh in the national park and the planning officer said look if you want to exist out here and have an economic uh, small holding um we prefer you moved to the town because then you'll be connected to the mains drainage we won't have to do your recycling you know you won't have any impact on the environment but when you want to live out there in the hills you've got a septic tank uh you have to use oil for heating so it, it's it, it's it's hard to it's hard to say yeah we can do it all and i think we've got to be more realistic nature-based Nature-friendly farming is great, but it's a slight oxymoron because organic farming knocks back nature to produce the yield. The big elephant in the room about all these all of these discussions is what we consume. Yes, this is this is like ultimately. I think there's a lot more and more people are talking about it. Right? It's not about the numbers. Did we have this conversation on the symposium as well, or was it like even before that? Where it's like, oh, there's like too many people, and that's and that's an argument that is repeated. And, you know, I hear that from various quarters. Sometimes it's very surprising. It's like, oh, do you think that? And then there's a point like, oh, you know, it is not about numbers. It is about consumption, and we never should say those things because obviously that, you know, take when you start talking about oh, there's too many people, then the next logical step is like, oh, what are you doing? It's just what a machine guns and start mowing them down. Or yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> It's definitely the consumption. It is not the numbers because the world population is now slowing down. It is, it will start declining. Now that doesn't mean that hey everything's fine. The world's going to be good. It is about how we consume it. It's it's in the Western. I've got to be careful. I use the phrase in the richer countries. And then uh, in the rich north. The, yes. Plus Australia. Yes. <laughs> you know we need to reduce our consumption, but in other parts we need to definitely reduce our calorific commodity consumption and head towards more nutritious food in parts of uh asia they will be wanting to have the diet that we have or we had and so it's going to be very hard to manage that they want to eat the meat that we're eating now we need to eat less meat higher quality meat now i'm going to take some heat for saying that but at the same time we can't have these generic discussions without maybe uh, referencing Africa and the African states need to get more protein. There is the there is the potential to increase farming yields, not by much, in order to give a, a much higher quality of life. And not only that, plants. but there is this at the same the same point. There is an argument about fossil fuel consumptions, where African countries are like, "Hey, look, you developed yourself it's the using yeah. using fossil fuels to this level, and now you're coming and telling us that we can't because you already." screwed up your part sure sure and and, and and okay we're getting into some heavy duty stuff you know, about the ipbc and you know that's probably not the right way of saying those letters but you know what i mean and also, also cop the fact that they've promised the richer the western world has promised billions of pounds to go to the less rich areas in order to pay compensation so they don't have to extract uh the fossil fuels having said that we, we will we will be extracting renewable um you know 
minerals in order to continue the renewable um, advance the as battery, to energy the production. Battery, yeah, exactly. The so technology. again, there's more trade-offs, and I think I think we can be braver to talk about those trade-offs. You know, within food, within farming, you know, within within environmental issues. You know, people say we need access to the countryside. Uh, sorry, we need access to green spaces, which is absolutely right. But there are trade-offs with that, and we've seen it with, you know, walking dogs and things like that. There was a great story about people walking in, uh, I think it was Romania, and they were attacked by the sheepdogs, which are obviously bred specially to keep the wolves away from the sheep. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't have it all. We want more wolves in the countryside, but we've got to have bigger dogs to keep them away. And that's also going to eat people that come near the sheep. <laughs> so what do we want out of this? And where do we want it? And you know, and you're, you're mentioning about that. These are like a difficult conversations and then uh, and, and hard and we need to be more honest. So, uh, you know, I get it like a circle back to the fact that, you know, uh, it's a different online conversation. It's a different conversation face to face. Because again, we have these things like if you're separated by hundreds or thousands of miles and you only see it on the screen, you know, you're, you're, you may not read your listeners or your, you know, you'd say, but at the same time, like, will you say the same thing? And now you have this con connection, right? And that, like the lady who said like, oh, is it greenwashing? Like you can see her and you can, you know, like she she meant it, but not in the adversarial way. It was like a yeah, I, yeah. Mind you, I think it was. I think actually, in that particular instance, it was quite adversarial, but in a positive way because there's nothing there's nothing wrong with harnessing the tension in the room. But that's the point. You've got to be in the room. At the same time, I'm going to do the flip side, and this will annoy people. Uh, it's I can understand that remote online gains access to a huge area you know lots of people who wouldn't who can't get into the room because it's quite elitist to run a conference i mean how many of these conferences cost you know hundreds of pounds i mean the you know the amount of time i've had to <laughs> blag my way in uh you know the, i love the oxford farming conference but you know uh you, you've got to find ways to get into the door to get in on that conversation and and so the online you know the, the, there's there's definitely ways to tap into many more diverse points of view who can't get into the room. But at the same time, I think there is, I think we still there's a lot of more creative, and I do use the word creative and more, um, I was almost going to say cunning ways to kind of have these conversations. You know, walking and talking is a real luxury, but... That's you know, what you're known for, right? That's what you're known for. Tell us about it. Like, what's the, what was the motivation? Like, people who don't, yeah, like people who don't know, like, you have, you have a very, uh, like, a prominent presence on Twitter and also on your YouTube channel when you're doing this walk and talk uh, videos. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, um, it was way back. Actually, it was 20 years ago. I did something on Discovery Channel. It was a kind of survival fishing program. And I realized that, you know, television was quite, you know, it was quite interesting. And I enjoy being, uh, yeah, I enjoyed putting my point across on it. Having said that, um, it, it's, 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 it's obviously not a platform for everyone. And then recently I've been thinking, well, you've got to make it pithy. I like writing letters in the Times. You've got to make it pithy and pertinent because the concentration span of a lot of people, including myself, could be pretty short. So the online, so these kind of short vlogs I do are not, and again, people probably get a bit irritated saying, what's he actually saying? And sometimes that's fine. You know, m me being irritable, oh, sorry, being irritating isn't the point. I'm trying to get people to think possibly in a different way. So my letters in the Times and my short vlogs are just to kind of come around the side, just look at something from a different angle. 
be provocative, but not necessarily want to change people's mind, change uh, kind of people's minds. But at the same time, maybe it is time to start to change people's mind. You know, and I'm ready. And sometimes I'm surprised I don't get much pushback. I want pushback. You know, I've had letters in the Times. I think that's really provocative about badges and stuff. There's no response now, <laughs> which is which is a really interesting thing. That might speak louder than any response. Sometimes, you know, the silence is the loudest response. Yeah, exactly. So you're being cancelled. In in effect, if you're too nuanced, people want to cancel you. You so, think so? Yeah, I, th I think so, because they want black or white. We want, are you with me or are you against me? Because you're not with me, you're against me. So I'm just, just not going to engage. And I notice that. I observe social media and there are people on it who used to work for organization as, let's say, environmental conservation scientists that join social media platform and they they completely change they switch off they then go down what i would call a rabbit hole and there's nothing wrong with rabbit holes except if you become a gatekeeper i.e you start to kind of police everything that comes out on the platform i just don't know where that's going to end up anyway let's let's forget social media let's go away from uh, yeah that. i want to i want to go back a little bit to the, yeah, uh, no. to the hunting organizations which uh i in the past was criticized, cri critical of myself um, in uh, both in Ireland and, and across the world. And what I see right now is like just a recent episode about the Woodcock research and the recent blog when I wrote about the NRIGC conference seminar, which were quite progressive, uh, you know, quite open-ended and with uh, many guests invited, like, you know, outside of the club, if you like. And I think that what CIC does and what we are witness is also kind of like this opening to the different points of view and kind of like a getting a little bit of the air to get the new opinions and see like, do you think this is, you know, too little, too late? This, do you think this is no, like the right I, moment? I, I, think, I, look, I think this is almost going back to roots, uh, going back to the roots. I mean, I discovered, um, I was reading Rachel Carson, uh, Silent Spring, and I, there was a foreword by um, the late Duke of Edinburgh. And he was doing the foreword as the president of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF. So I kind of dug around a bit. And then I, then I found a picture, bizarrely, a picture of him in 1968 in New York at some big dinner launching the WWF. And I looked at the picture hard. And I could see all the people in the kind of world. I didn't know who they were, obviously, but I sensed and I did a bit more digging and they were all what you might call hunters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what well, they, they were, they were of, you know, they were coming from hunting interests and they were setting up a worldwide uh, wildlife fund. Uh, and it's a bit like... Is it okay. not natural? Like, this is, like you said, yeah, this, these are the rules. This is natural. Like, yeah, I was saying, okay, like, so hunters... so here's another one. Kind of, you know, Sir Peter Scott setting up Slimbridge, which is now the Wetland Wildlife Trust. Uh, and, and I think... So in, so so what I mean by coming back to the roots, the roots... And, you know, Aldo Leopold, you know, in America is, is, is you know, was very much about hunting, about forestry, about land use... We can have some of these conversations, which are not going back to the past, but we can reference the origins of what hunting is about, which is the conservation of habitat and ecosystems. And in the perfect utopia, it's the harvesting of the surplus of the wildlife, which is 
the utopia. However, I also accept that people hunt for different reasons. And in the symposium, we, we had some fascinating discussions between someone from France talking about hunting and that guy from Guatemala. It meant something completely different, the word hunting. And I used the word hunting in the UK. And people say, what do you mean hunting? What, kind of hounds, foxes and things like that? No, I'm, I'm talking about hunting in a kind of hunting rabbits, hunting fish, wild brown trout. So, so I think, but people are so afraid to even mention the word hunting and the word conservation. Oh man, I got but so much. We don't heat. have to be, yeah. Yeah, I got so much heat because I referred to trophy birding after reading the books about birding, and like a genuine point where you know you they have those lists and ticking off the birds that they seen or not, or they like I need to have like a ten birds in their garden, and I said like, oh, it's like a trophy birding. Oh boy. Well, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and you would have taken heat and quite rightly too because you were entering a den you were kind of i would argue um that you I were was just being provocative yes. like like this chap rob york no i'm not no i okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna push back on that because i like to think i'm not well, I probably again it all depends someone said the other day they said rob are you right in the nexus of all of these discussions or are you an outlier and that very much depends on where you're kind of you know viewing me i mean i like to think i'm a little bit of a disruptor not an agitator a disruptor this is my interpretation, ready to be shot down, uh, is uh, someone who wants to disrupt the current narrative in order to take it into a new space. Uh, I would argue an agitator or sometimes an agent provocateur, excuse the French accent. We are in France, in, in, in Paris, Paris, so really it's your... I'm sorry. Uh, uh, a kind of a provocateur could be more like an agitator. You want to keep it in the same space because it's quite attractive because then you draw disciples in ideology you know you're going to attract more followers if you're an agitator i don't i've been on twitter for 12 years 13 years now uh, uh but but that's a long time but only again you got about i don't know kind of six and a half thousand followers you know that that's that's kind of pathetic for the time i've been there Thirty-five thousand tweets whatever i'm trying to reduce it but, the, uh, but what i'm getting around to saying is that i think if you we have to find our roles and if it is as an agitator i think you're going to get a lot more followers definitely you're going to attract people and then you might get more media coverage because you've got more followers doesn't mean that you necessarily um are the right person on that platform but on the say on the flip side a disruptor i'd like to think could help people have some of these difficult conversations but without ownership a lot of this is about ownership you know like i said i mentioned at the beginning like you are an eel right so i'm i feel like i say something that i, I love eels. that i that i that i meant <laughs> but, yeah and then but, it's but like no 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 I mean, this is not what i mean so i'm just not gonna you know i'm not gonna assume anything and i just there's gonna say something i said many times on the podcast and and offline that um, the unique thing I think about the podcast and kind of like a thing that I do is like I have a people from the hunting space and people from the conservation space and the birders and other people, people who are online on Twitter and other social media offer are at loggerheads. And then, you know, I talk with both of them and I said, like, I feel like sometimes with every episode of the podcast, I'm upsetting half of my audience. So some people say like, oh, this is the worst thing you can do because you can focus in like, who is your audience? Who is your tribe? And just go hard into that. And then I'm a, I feel like I do a terrible job because I just have like this and this and they, you know, I'm upsetting both sides. I feel that you are a little bit like that. So that's a question. Am I get this right? Do you have that feeling as well that you're a little bit like that? I think as, as I said at the start, I, I, yes, I remember I do annoy I'm I just I'm why I'm prevaricating Tommy is that I'm not keen on the word 
sides, but I know what you're saying. And I remember someone said, hey, Rob, some of the rural sector think you're a, a right-on environmentalist and some of the environmentalists think you're a, a mad right-on farmer-hunter type. So, you know, people will put them in, put you into a pigeonhole as to whatever they want to do. It, 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 it is, it is, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got to ask your question is that I suppose by annoying both sides, you're doing a good job. And I've heard, and that's been said before about, other people when they're commentating on various political issues left and right you will always annoy one side or the other and of course the other thing is if you're trying to set up a conference let's say uh, the conference was joining the big bird sorry the big garden whatever is it the big garden bird watch and the great farmland bird count do you see what i mean you know one's One's run by uh, a large bird organization. Another one is run by a smaller farming uh, and game organization. But the common ground between the two is pretty obvious, isn't it? Birds. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm still working on how to kind of tease out the space to be able to join those two, those two bird counts together. You know, the great, well, I think, oh, I'm forgetting it. Yeah, it's the great bird. It's a great garden bird count and the, you know, big farm and bird count. This is very confusing for people who want to get into that space because they, they, they also confuse, like I found that in the deer organization in Ireland where it's like, okay, is this one not the same as this one? Are there two different ones? Then you have a different count. You have a two different uh, seal rescue organizations that are like doing the same thing. It's so there's like, a lot of replication going on within the environmental sector. Now, I, I mean, it's naive, naive of me to think that uh, everyone who's, who does a garden bird count wants to come to a farm and bird count. But there is so much. I think yesterday the uh, bird index, yeah, the farmland bird index came out. Now that that then influences how people talk about the environment because they see it going down. But actually, it's slowing. There's some really positive messages coming out of that. So it's the way that different uh, organisations, different, I don't want to say ideological stances, but there's an element of that can be pulled to one side we could be less precautionary and more pragmatic by discovering a space to come together there was a great paper done on farmland birds 25 years of joint collaborative partnership between i've hinted almost at the two organizations i'm not going to name the names of the organizations people can work it out you know between the garden bird watch and the farmland bird watch and it was a joint paper and it's it's full of dynamite when I say full of dynamite, not in an agitating kind of provocative way, dynamite of how we can actually do this, how we can get birds to recover within the, you know, within the countryside and by implication within gardens. But it hasn't really gone anywhere because there's not a, enough collaboration within organizations to do a joint press release. We are sometimes I think the environmental sector is being driven by membership and recruitment rather than by the scientists but isn't it, it, it it's a it's a hundred percent true right there are like I, just, I think like two episodes ago they we you know my guess I think it was Richard Prideau who said like you know they have to be human-centric because dormice doesn't have pockets I love the quote yeah yeah dormice don't have pockets yeah yeah okay exactly so yeah you need to use the data and the information you have and so you need to take ownership of that of that and take ownership of the narrative because then it gives you a mantle on which to raise money now okay i think that's a whole i think that's a really interesting and a whole big area to go to and we can come back to your earlier question about you know we're talking about hunting now you know going back to what well, i'm saying going back to its root you know the wwf the worldwide 
uh, kind of fun for nature. Um, this organization that's holding the conference here, the CIC, is all about wildlife and conservation. There's other organizations who I think could could strip away some of the stuff which is getting in the way of being able to collaborate. Yeah, you mentioned uh, data, and that was one of the theme that I also want to talk about. That was the theme on the journalist symposium, and also yesterday on the on the on the uh, general assembly presentations about the data. And on one hand, we have this push towards data and presenting the facts and visualizing data and you know asking people to draw their village on the map and stuff like that but then on the other hand we have this aspect of saying okay you want to say something really badly no, I, I do yeah no sorry to jump in yeah I, yeah yeah do go are. for it go for I, it I, I started to wiggle like an eel didn't i <laughs> because I, but, i'm reading your body yeah, language no, mate. you are perhaps you spot on because on exactly that point and maybe i've got too many thoughts going through my head at the same time you say data i say a data i mean there we are we've got two different ways of saying it what I want to talk about was the State of Nature Report. So the State of Nature Report is a brilliant example of where you could bring the data, the data, uh, from so many different sources. I learned English from TV, hence data, because yeah, it's American. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I'm here to not correct you, but to give a different point of view on that word. And the use of data is key. Okay, so the State of Nature Report, and this is slightly what I'm driving at, and it, it, it always has slightly driven me, is how to find a a way to bring more people into the room to provide the data for the state of nature. So the state of nature report is run by uh, a large group or it's about 30, 40 uh, environmental NGOs and it's every three years they do this big report, etc. In 2016 was particularly interesting because out of it came phrase um, nature depleted. Now that didn't come out of the scientific paper. The paper was actually biodiversity intactness index. Now I mustn't run too deep right now, but what I'm saying is out of it came a press friendly expression, nature depleted, which has now gone viral into lots of different contexts without, without any, uh, sorry, without any context. Uh, and you hear kind of politicians saying, we are the way it's nature depleted, etc. The original paper was actually based on uh, states, uh, Southern African states, who have an extremely high biodiversity intactness. So comparing the UK uh, with maybe Botswana or Namibia, I think is a pretty harsh call because... Nature depleted. Yeah, that's it. But, but you but, know, but, that's but I also I I'm gonna I'm gonna push on. I'm gonna feel like a politician. Yeah, go but, on. But all it would it was really just to say the use of data in the state of nature report. It could embrace other organisations who maybe aren't true pure environmental NGOs, but also have great data. And they are hunting organisations, farming organisations who have data on their land. And let's not forget the. I'm, okay, I'm talking about the UK now because that's the State of Nature report. I think there's one coming out next year. It's about letting go of the ownership of data and making it much more inclusive. Uh, I think the data comes in from about 9,000 different species. We've got 70,000, 70,000 species of kind of nature and biodiversity in the UK. We have data on about eight and a half, nine thousand 9,000 species. That is then collated by environmental NGOs. There is so much more data out there that could be brought up into that from ordinary land managers, whatever. And that's just not getting in. And that's because of the politics between some of the organizations. So I am here to disrupt political manipulation of data in order to give it back to the people. 
to make it more inclusive because then we can all gain the public good from having more data from all sources can then inform much better the the next state of nature report and everyone will have the logo on the back it won't just be a particular sector i'm going to push back now on it and this i'm just going to i'm just going to come back to what i said earlier and you actually said it the same thing so we have this motif this this theme on the conference and you give an excellent example of that of using like oh nature depleted like an emotionally loaded uh term that then gets spread and then young people go into the space young and you know naturalists they all oh, we are nature depleted repeating the phrase emotional and one of the points made on the on the symposium was like we really need to focus more on the emotional message on the on the emotional packaging of it because we see that a lot of campaigns like uh, ban on trophy hunting are completely not based in the facts at all however they're getting a lot of traction because they have a very attractive packaging emotional packaging and one of the things one of the interesting things that i took from from this event was like okay the data or data might not be and the facts might not be that important as you think probably this emotional messaging is more important yeah yeah no i yeah no you sure sure um and i actually at the symposium i had a paper which i was i was going to share in fact i will share it online there we are the use of online is good and it's basically you know, facts do not change minds. And actually, yes, Tim Harford, uh, you know, he's a kind of BBC uh, Radio 4 guy. He does economics, but also he's written some great stuff about facts do not change minds. Uh, we can look at the tobacco history, the tobacco history. And before I go down the rabbit hole, and that's all, it's a really interesting area that the facts, the scientific facts will not change minds. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Emotion uh, and you're absolutely right to say emotions are part of this. And I do hear it quite often, especially from some of the some of the scientists saying, we need to get away from the emotion. We need to just use pure evidence-based. And I'm going, no, 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 no. You have to accept the playing field involves emotion. And so we have to find a way to blend the data and the facts. into. And some people would say storytelling is a better way of doing it. So storytelling where you can bring in the hard evidence, the evidence base, and is that evidence uh, informed? Is that you know the, 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 it, it's it's about bringing the evidence in. But having said that, the evidence itself, science is uncertain. Everyone seems to sometimes think science is certain. There's the paper. Uh, uh can you replicate it? Can it be done in ten years' time? That's another thing. You can find a, you can find peer-reviewed papers on any you know to prove any almost any given point, whatever whatever you want. And I you know it pains me when someone says like, oh you know just you educate yourself. It's uh you know it's science. No 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 no. That science is a process. It's a scientific process that involves a lot of change. So. I love the idea of the getting a more of the storytelling, like you said, and also emotional messaging on top of the data, as we know as as it is. So this brings me back to COP15. So the you know this hunting conference is all about biodiversity, or that's you know in their headline. I think it says restore, rewild, a remind, and it's all about biodiversity 2030. COP15 was really interesting because there are 23 targets and. A lot of them are about local communities and anecdotal. They don't use the word anecdotal, but the knowledge of local communities. Even some of the, what I call hardcore scientists acknowledge that anecdotal evidence needs to be blended with the empirical hard evidence. So 
bringing me back, or sorry, trying to bring this, to kind of distill this back to what we're trying to do with, let's say, the state of nature. It's to engage the emotions, and that's where people use nature-depleted expressions to kind of engage with the media and, you know, emotion that is an emotional charged phrase, and it is generally right. But then we need to set the context, which, which does need to bring in some some hard science to show that that's happening. But at the same time, the science can be used to show how things are improving in certain areas. Now, people will say, don't you dare say that, Rob, because that will give people the false idea that things are getting better. And I would say, no, hang on, we got to, if we're going to use evidence-based, we've also got to show some evidence of things getting better in order to sustain some kind of hope to keep people in the room. Because I think we've got to really worry about is um, doom, you know, eco-doom, and, and people are kind of almost switching off, or, the, or they're becoming so tribal and so binary, saying, well, I don't, I can't, I'm now distancing myself, uh, and, and then you're losing engagement, and then when you lose engagement, the vacuum will be filled by potentially more hardcore views from whether, you know, at either end of the spectrum. And then the narrative will start to change, then the media will report stuff, and then we can go down a really bad rabbit hole. So I think now is a real chance to use... Yeah, emotion is really important. We are emotional uh, animals. But I think we can be smarter at how we blend that kind of hard science with the soft emotions and have these braver conversations about hunting, about, about, about how we change our diet, about how we change the farming, forestry. I mean, I think we should almost draw this to an end because otherwise we could carry on running and running, you got to get an airplane. Quite yeah, soon. I have a, I have a one other thing to to wrap this up, which is which is typical for me. Like, if you had the magic wand, right, or you were or you were like a king of the world kind of thing, like, what would you do? Like, what would be your recipe to get this dialogue going and kind of like a start moving things in somehow more of a? I, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> the famous magic wand question. No, huh? yeah, I hate it. Tell me, uh, my magic wand would be to put you on a train right now and get you out of here because I think we could spend another hour on it because I'm not going to do a, you want me to do a little soundbite, which will then become the nature depleted comment of this whole interview. And I'm not sure if I'm going to go Rob down York that said. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Let's be better critical friends. Let's have those critical. People are so fearsome, so feared of that word critical. But when you put the word critical friends and you've got to keep the R in, R in there because if you say critical fiends, you mean the opposite. I think I think we can be a lot more we can engage in and it has to be face to face. I'm sorry. You know, if, if we're gonna have these really uh gnarly conversations, I think we can learn to argue and I think we can still be friends, but we can have different values, but we can have that common purpose. I think we can take the emotions and take the hard science. But it's gonna take time and it's 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 gonna be we're gonna sometimes do 180 degrees. And that's a hard thing to do right now, right now. So we may have to bear a bit more time, but I just, I spent my wand is, don't say something online that you might regret if someone then is going to buy you a drink in a bar face to face. Smart words, wise words, Rob. Thank you a lot. Thanks a lot for this conversation. It's been great. Tommy, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 